Hello, I'm Emma Rice, the Artistic Director of Wise Children, and you're listening to Wise Children's Lockdown. Our Lockdown Project is about us finding ways of staying close to each other. On this show, I call up an old friend, play some records, and most importantly, get to chat and reminisce. Come and join us for Tea and Biscuits. Hello and welcome to Wise Children's Lockdown Tea and Biscuits and today I am talking with friend, colleague and lighting designer extraordinaire Malcolm Ripith. Hello Malcolm. Hello Emma. (laughs) Right first of all um, what is your actual or virtual biscuit of choice? Ooh I don't often eat a biscuit. I won't have biscuits in the house because they just don't last so I just eat whatever biscuits there are in a rehearsal room normally. But ah. some biscuits would bring joy to me. Like a nice biscuit is the worst thing. Oh, I thought you were going to choose it and no, I was going to be very surprised by that. So not a nice biscuit. Probably the, probably the biscuit I would most look forward to finding in a, green, in a rehearsal room would be a dark chocolate digestive. That is your virtual gift today. Dark chocolate. Lovely. I'd really nibble it and make it last, and then, but then I'd have another one, and then I'd probably sneak off halfway through when I got bored and have another one. Mm. But you're very healthy. I, I associate you with a very healthy um, spread of fruit on the tech desks. Oh yes. Well, I think it's a really nice thing when. So when we're actually doing technical rehearsals in a theatre, I think it's really nice to have some fruit on my table. Uh, with me and the lighting programmer normally. Because um, otherwise people, often people don't come and talk to you. Well, you know, we're all just sat around in the dark, looking down our own little tunnels, trying to do our own work whilst all being a team. But actually, if there's a nice bowl of accessible fruit, something small like a satsuma or something, then people, weirdly, they kind of amble up more often. Yeah, it's a good time. have a little chat. I definitely come to yeah. the lighting desk for treats and snacks. Yeah. And it's good when it's fruit. Sometimes it gets into being little sugary things and, and then I start getting a bit hyper. <laughs> um, and how's lockdown treating you? Where are you? How are you feeling? Paint me a picture. Uh, I'm at home in London, in Bethnal Green, in my flat. Um, I haven't been ill. I don't... There's no one close to me who's really vulnerable. Um, it's kind of quite pleasantly lazy. It's taken... You know, it's been, it has its ups and downs. But when it's good, I, I'm eating really well and getting out for more exercise than I ever normally would. And on a good day, I really fill the time with doing interesting things. And then on a bad day, I get a bit desperate. But it's, it's all right, actually. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting back to work at some point. But I'm going to try and enjoy this for what it is in the meantime. And I know I'm very lucky to be able to do that. Um. Tell me about your first choice. I know why you've chosen it, but talk to me. Uh, so my first choice is Get a Move On by Mr. Scruff, which takes me every time I hear it. And it does pop up in the world occasionally. Every time I hear it, it takes me right back to the first time we worked together, which was for Knee High. They were making a show called Pandora's Box down in Cornwall in 2002. Um, and this track... Um, just put the track in context. The track was the, was played before the as the audience were coming in before the show started, and it was mixed into a half hour long loop, which could have been really annoying. But at the time, this 
it was perfect. And I'd be in there before the show each evening, just getting more and more excited, waiting for the show to start, because it was an exciting show and it was something very different to anything I'd done before. Um, but what it takes me back to is that process. And actually, really, it's turning up in Cornwall at the Knee High Barns for the first time, uh, really meeting you and all of the team we were working with. And I mean, having no idea I was still going to be doing work with you 18 years later, but knowing right then that I was in the right place. At, at that moment, that was just the perfect place to be and learning so much. And that journey's been ongoing ever since.
to move on, the amazing Mr. Scruff. I've got such amazing memories of that time. It was a co-production with Northern Stage and I co-directed it with my dear friend Neil Murray. But I was also in it. I gave myself mm-hmm. the leading role <laughs> of Lulu. <laughs> you did. Who is, who is You're very good. the most sort of beautiful and intoxicating and seductive woman in sort of literature. And I gave myself that part, which is hilarious in hindsight. <laughs> But you've always been very good at casting. You were obviously just in the right place at the right time. <laughs> well, I think I was so I was so new in my directing career that I still hadn't quite given up my ambition to act. And I thought mm. being a director gave me the finally the power to give myself some plum roles, which no other director had given me at that point. Um, but I remember, <laughs> I, I know who it was, Kate Bassett, um, reviewed me and said that I was a cross between Billy Bunter and Susie Sue. <laughs> well, I thought you were very good. You know, what do I know? Well, thank you. I think um, I think it wasn't long after that I realised that my talents lay in directing and my interest. So I don't wish to give myself the best parts anymore. But I do look back and sort of smile at myself. But it was an amazing show, and I remember that as well because I would be out in the audience as Lulu while that Mr Scruff track was playing. Mm-hmm. And I learnt the loop so that when we did go into clearance, I could hear the music change and I would ramp up my journey ready to sit on the edge of the stage at exactly the right moment. So I've got that ingrained in my DNA as well. Yeah. I almost get stage fright when I hear it. Even now, it makes me so excited. <laughs> I definitely don't get stage fright, but I do. I used to dance at the back of the auditorium, you know, as it got louder and louder. It was clever because it just it would play subliminally and then it would get louder and louder and louder at the final five minutes. And the audience went from talking quietly to talking a bit louder and eventually they sort of had to give up talking so they couldn't hear themselves over the track just for the last little bit. And then the show started and I'd just be dancing at the back of the auditorium having a great old time. <laughs> One of the great things I love about you is your love of dancing, which we might come to later on. So I, my, I'm, my first choice... Um, really takes me back because from the minute we met we've we've worked on almost every show together ever since um, and this conversation really could track the whole of my directing journey but I wanted to take you back to a very early show which was my adaptation of Angela Carter's Nights at the Circus which I feel was a real amazing moment for all of us it was designed by the late Bill Mitchell and um, costumes by Vicky Mortimer. And it was amazingly ambitious, this huge book, um, designed in a a really sort of metaphorical way. I feel that we were making really European theatre at that time. Um, Amazing Mm -hmm. Nat Tenner as as Feathers, the winged woman, and an amazingly um, complicated score. And I feel that we were coming of age as a team at that point. And I remember the final mm-hmm. act of it being lit so beautifully with this turning mirror and these shafts of light. And I think we were sort of oh, absolutely yeah. bursting out of ourselves as artists. It was throwing that final bungee sequence of the, the two lovers just bouncing up and down. Was, it kind of came out of nowhere. Was- the, the show had it dark, but then something absolutely extraordinary happened. And it had a few of those moments within it that I remember right to this day, like the world falling apart just before the final act. Just felt like a whirlwind. 
it's it completely for me as an audience member and I love I love what I'm doing as a job but also I, when I watch a show I'm a member of the audience as well and every time that would just get me I feel I'd be that we lost were, in it. I feel like we were fearless at that point. I certainly feel that I was fearless and the whole team we did anything. So what the bit you're talking about there's a there was a moment when the world sort of fell to pieces and we had a sort of feminist montage coming through sound didn't we the voices of women Houdini yeah. Um, yeah. Widow talking and Rosa Parks talking it was sort of phenomenal and as I say this amazingly sort of sparse and exciting lighting design coming from you and then the bungee mm. routine that the first time we did perform a flying I think which was Gisley Orngardasson the first time I'd w- worked with him and Nat Tenner flying in the mm-hmm. air it was phenomenal wasn't yeah. it um, it was so exciting and this my choice for you today is Lemon Trees which was the final anthem at the end and this is particularly close oh, to my yeah. heart it's composed by Stu Barker and the knee-high band played it at my knee-high leaving party, which was one of the most magical oh, events missed, of my life. I missed your knee-high leaving party. I wish I was there. We missed you as well, but this takes us all back. from Nights at the Circus, written by Stu Barker with lyrics by Tom Morris. Makes the hairs on my neck stand up every time. I think I haven't heard that since we made that show. And again, the the power of music in your work is it's so strong within it that when I hear a track like that, it takes me back to the emotion and the beauty. and, And I can see it as well. I can see that scene just from being reminded of it by the music. It's beautiful. Um, talk to me about your next track before we play it uh which is go slow johnny which was uh within uh the show brief encounter that we i think we made not long after nights of the circus it was back in 2007 and then it had a long long life that show um 
And there was one sequence in the show where we come down very closely to the, the central couple uh, in a boathouse, and they've, they've gone, they've got wet in the, they've fallen out of their own boat and got wet, and they've been taken into a boathouse and are sitting on an upturned rowing boat. And it's that beautiful still centre to the show. The show's a lot going on, and then suddenly it's really quiet and contained and intimate. It's the one time they really are in an intimate space together. Um, uh, trying to work out if this relationship is going to happen or not. Um, and visually, it was really beautiful. It stands out from the rest of the show for being this closed, warm world. Um, and this version of Ghost Flow Johnny is, is the soundtrack to it. Um, some, and we've had various casts do this over the years, and each time it's each time it's completely beautiful. Um, and so focusing and so quiet, and then it explodes again out of that. We come out of this back onto a railway station platform. Very abruptly, and the world goes from being cosy and warm, which is in the lighting as well as everything else coming together, and just slips into this barren black and white version of, of where things are going to go. Um, but this song is, is that beautiful heart in the middle of the show. Slow, Johnny, go slow. 
The amazing Go Slow Johnny, lyrics by Noel Coward, music by, oh no, music and lyrics by Noel Coward. I nearly credited Stu Barker with writing Go Slow Johnny um, and sung by the phenomenal (laughs) Stu McLaughlin. That show, Malcolm, again, if we were bursting out of our skins on nights at the circus and our early work... Um, Brief Encounter was something really magical. We we landed as a team, didn't we? I feel that our ambitions really came together with an amazing script. Um, a great producer, David Pugh, and we, we just made an, an adaptation that worked. And I, f- I feel that it was a real moment when the team solidified and and we moved we 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 changed the way that we worked for the better it, it we became something at that point and we're all still working together to this day i mean the team is pretty unbreakable from that moment yeah i think we were all pushing each other to do better and better work and we had long enough with that show that that every little time we made it again just running up to the to going into the west end every time we did it we pushed each other further and people were at the top of their game and they loved the show so much and we always knew it could be even better than it was. And over the years, it just kept getting better and better and better. Um, even though it was wonderful in the first place, but then it just kept growing because we, we were all sort of in love with it and and no one ever settled into it being good enough. It was just this, this joy to keep improving it. I feel that it was my absolute training as an adapter and a director because as you say it took me lots of goes it took all of us lots of goes to get it really perfect and I think I learned Mm. every one of those lessons and I do them quicker now I I feel like they're now logged but it was through those lessons with Brief Encounter thinking no we can find a better rhythm we can really dig into this more that I learnt I mean I learnt to edit is the big thing because when we first opened Brief Encounter it was in two halves and was 20 minutes longer 
and I learned. And when we finished yeah. it, it was an hour and a half straight through um, with no fat. It was so rigorous and so sort of lean as a piece of work and yet fat emotionally. And I think I've never gone back from those lessons that we all learned together. Yeah, I think my memory of you back in the early years, which just the five years prior to making that show, was that there was so, you were capable of making so much brilliant material. We'd end up with, you know, three hours of material that was all superb and then be cutting and cutting and cutting to try and get it down to a length that people were, were going to enjoy. But then Brief Encounter, the structure was perfect by the end of it. And that process, you're right, that process of editing, you know, is a, such a skill. And what I do now, as, as that lesson, I try and uh, do much more work before rehearsals start because I can't bear wasted work. I can't bear when actors and creators have made something mm. beautiful to cut it. It hurts my soul. So what I try to do now is not create work that I don't think will make it into the show. So I've learned so many lessons from that, which, which have rolled forward. Um, I think I've learned, which I sort of knew anyway, that when something gets cut, you put so much work into something and we do a technical rehearsal and you make something absolutely perfect and then you're picking away at it and then suddenly someone goes, yeah, we're, we're going to cut that. I, I feel that as such a relief now. And I think way back in my career when something got cut, there's a, there's a sense of kind of sulking about it and being like, oh, but it was good and we put all this work into it. And, and now I just, I just let it go, you know. Really, yeah, brilliant. Let's not do it at all. And just figuring out what works and what doesn't work is, you know, aside from all the craft and the art of what we do, figuring out that we don't need something is such relief. It's a, it's a bit of getting older, isn't it? Yeah, that there's don't waste time on something that doesn't work. Keep investing yeah. on what do, in yeah. what does work and moving forwards. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about your process of um, being a lighting designer because one of the sort of when I, when I reflect about the many, many hours you and I have sat in rehearsal rooms and theatres, the thing that jumps out at me is we don't talk very much. We, you, you watch. <laughs> I think we talk more than we do now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't mean we don't talk as friends, but we don't talk as colleagues too much. And um, I think a lot of that is to do with how long we've worked together. We really understand each other's aesthetic. I trust you mm. implicitly with your eye for painting colour onto the shows that I make. Um, and you put in so much work in the rehearsal room that you, I feel that you get me. And I feel that there's so much unsaid that it's quite remarkable what happens. But talk mm. to me about what is going on in that process. So I suppose there's, there's a whole pre-rehearsal process where we do have conversations and we're, we're talking about where the work's coming from. And like, most important thing is why you're making a particular show because there's always a really, really good reason for making that show, any given show, at the time that it's made. And an audience never needs to know what that is, but I do. I need to get inside why the work is being made. And then there's some, some big design things get decided before we go into rehearsals. But then what I'm really doing when I'm sitting quietly in the corner of a rehearsal room is trying to understand what it is that you're doing, um, why we're doing each individual thing, and feeling it. So just having an emotional response to, to what's happening, picking up on the structure, which I can never do at full speed once you get to running a show. I could never pick up on the detail of structure. So I'm sitting there, and what I'm doing mostly is trying to figure out how to light 
each scene, each moment, each beat, each transition from one feeling and one place to the next. And so I'm painting pictures in my head or seeing images in my head and, and, and try to write those down. And that isn't necessarily straight into a lighting plan. I might be writing a, a bit of prose or doing some scribbles with some numbers that mean something to me technically or drawing a little picture. And then slowly over the course of weeks, piecing all of that together, again, throwing a lot of that material away, like a lot of the stuff that I've made will, you know, will never ever happen on stage, but trying to get so inside the show that the lighting, even before it exists, is integral inside it, rather than what often we do, what often I do with other directors where I spend less time in rehearsals is the lighting is something that gets laid on at the last minute, the show's complete, and then we get into the theatre and the lighting sort of happens on top of it. For me, with your work, the lighting is, is there already. It's just no one can see it apart from me. And inevitably, we get into the theatre and, and that's my plan A. You know, I've got a really well, reasonably well thought through plan A. And inevitably, a load of that goes by the by because we're all making new discoveries there. But at least it's grounded in, hopefully, an emotional understanding of what it is we're doing and a... Yeah, I'm sitting, I'm sitting in a rehearsal room conducting thought experiments and saying very little, but an actors look at me and go, why are you here every day? Like, this is brilliant. And also I just enjoy the process. Enjoy being in a room with people, getting to know them, getting to know performers, getting to know everyone in the team, um, so that we are all, we're one team. The, the audience only ever see the people who are on stage, the, the performers, musicians. But really, we're all we're all together and we're all making one piece of work. And I just need to be around for that. And I love it. And I think I, I haven't had to work with many other lighting designers, but I think you're quite unique in the amount of time you put into rehearsals and you play ball with us and you play games with us. And you're, and like you say, you're part of the team and I value that so highly. And it really shows in the work and the efficiency of the work because, as you say, I yeah. rarely have to come and... There's, there's rarely a problem because we're just making something together and I really, really love that. Very occasionally I do go off on a tangent and you never know what that's going to be because that tangent might have been in my head for a month and then something happens on stage and you're like, what? Is, why is there a miracle in this scene? It's like, oh, I thought it was a good idea and then, and then you talk me through the scenes in a little more detail. Like, yeah, okay. I don't, I can't remember a time I've ever said no to a miracle. There, there was once. What, when was that? Uh, it was in The Flying Lovers of the Thames. <laughs> Do you remember it yet? No. And I think he came up to my desk in the theatre and he said, this scene, um, you, you do know it's it's about the Holocaust. And I was like, oh, that's what's going on with, with the shoes. And I got it immediately. You know, I've, I've, I've studied all that. I've been to Auschwitz. I know what pairs of shoes mean in the context of the Holocaust. And I just didn't get it. I think I must have stepped out and been on the phone in that day in rehearsals when you were putting together that scene. And I, I completely misunderstood the the language of what was going on on stage. It's very easy to turn a mirror ball off. I love that. I, don't, I had erased that from my memory that you'd um, tried to put a mirror ball into the Flying Lovers of Vitebsk. How brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I think I also have an aversion to green lighting. I think I sometimes come up and say, I can see green. 
I think Varvar Var Girls is my memory of that. I mean, there, there was definitely some green in Varvar Var Girls and, and some of it stayed, but, <laughs> but not all of it, not all of it. You do, your, your peculiarity, which I do very occasionally forget, is that you don't like a hard line of light on the floor. Correct. And I think once every five years, I, I try and squeeze one in because I think that's graphically quite interesting for some reason. And, yeah. And I don't, it like, I don't like it and never will. And you make you make me make it a little bit softer, and I do, and then I make it a little bit softer, and then I'm like, it doesn't mean anything anymore. I'll, I'll have a better idea. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> right, my next choice is um, just a mm-hmm. little bit of nostalgia. I'm going to play a song from Don John, one of our more ambitious shows, which was was absolutely sensational with its lighting. We had these big fairground signs which were lit up in so many bulbs. It was absolutely absolute feast for the eyes and this is Turn the Sun Down sung by Dom Lawton music by Stu Barker and lyrics by Anna Maria Murphy Turn the sun down It's hot in here Can't you hear her heart beat a memory of this show that I had a lighting idea which I I can't remember all of it but I think I wanted to put like lots of tiny lights on the floor at the end and I bought 
I think I bought them. I don't know what was going on. Like small, they were like patio battery powered lights, which then got put on the floor. But then all the actors trod on them, skidded on them, fell over them. Um, it was a disaster. It was an absolute disaster. The batteries didn't work. It was like a putting so many trip hazards and slip hazards onto a stage and they were cut. <laughs> Do you remember them? I do remember that. That was a very brief window of time when they were in the show. But yeah, they, they didn't make it. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, never let me have lighting ideas. You're you're much better at it and mustn't <laughs> let me get involved. Well, I occasionally have directing ideas, but, you know, I, I try and keep them to myself. You you put in, your, you, you stay beautifully sort of focused and silent and then you just throw in one idea or one question which sort of reveals my lack of process. I mean, you're you're famous for noticing an inaccuracy in timeline, in time of day, mm. date. Didn't I once put a date on the inner projection which was the when war was declared? I think I think you did, yeah. I can't remember which show it was. I think that was Brief Encounter. I remember at one point Brief Encounter had a, had one at the very beginning when the calendar was counting down, it actually had the year and the day of the week and everything. I was like, this is too specific. But like my brain gets quite into numerical things. I'm like, as soon as I see a number on a screen, I'm like, oh, let me work out what that is. Okay, so there and like I've lost what I'm actually supposed to be supposed to be experiencing. And you also asked me, um, what is this evening or is this morning? And I'm like, I don't care. It's just a scene. But because you're a lighting designer, it really matters to you. And actually it always helps. When you make me make a decision, it always helps knowing where they are and what they're feeling. Yeah, and the lighting may not end up being anything naturalistically that tells us that at the end of the day. But it's really useful for me to have in my head where and when we are. Um yeah, and sometimes you go, you know, you go straight from breakfast, people going to bed, and you're like, how did that happen? <laughs> but there's a really good way that happens. The other great bit of um, date crunching that you did is we did a whole show based on the wrong date in the 1970s. Don John, I set in the summer of discontent, and didn't I think it was 1976? And you, it was really late in the day. You said I think it was 78. We had to change all the copy. It was 78. Yeah, but you were the one who noticed that. So I feel that as long as I've got you in the room, there won't be any idiotic mistakes going on. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this is Simon in the back pointing out that I've just said the summer of discontent and it was the winter of discontent. You did. Still... I, I wasn't going to point that out. It was the winter of discontent. It was the winter of 1978. <laughs> this is why I surround myself with you two. <laughs> I don't bother with details, do I? I'm just there for the big picture. <laughs> or the wrong picture, whichever one you think of. The winter of 78 was a really um, was a really big time for me, lighting-wise, because that's when all the power cuts were happening. Yeah. And I was five years old. And it's, and it's the power cuts that sort of taught me about light and the fact that light could change, because my parents owned a little shop that was lit by a fluorescent tube. And when there was a power cut, that shop was suddenly lit with candles and torches and paraffin lamps and it transformed from the everyday downstairs of our house to this kind of magical toy shop world and that's the first time I think I was ever aware of of what lighting could do and I was five years old so wow. yeah if I'd been three I wouldn't have remembered it. And when I think you've got a story when did you know that lighting was going to be your passion? It was it was that winter so yes, winter of 1978, just to remind you. Um, and it was between that and that same winter I went to the theatre for the first time. Uh, my mum was a brown owl in the brownies 
and she was taking um, it was a special matinee performance for brownies, like 600 brownies, at the theatre watching a pantomime. Um, and whoever was playing the pantomime dame did something which is really not good, which is figure out who to get out of the audience to get up on stage to humiliate and went through 600 girls in little brown dresses and picked the one boy in the audience, which was me, because I'm not going to get a babysitter. And I ended up being the one on stage, just looking out at this world and writing and going, look at this, this is really cool. Um, and that linked in with the, the power cuts that same winter, just said lighting's really good. And I thought I'm going to do that in a theatre. And I remember the next day, I mean, I may be misremembering this, I think it was the next day, um, I was sitting in the window at home going, oof, I mean, I wanted to be a builder yesterday before we went to the theatre, so, you know, what kind of fluidity gibbet am I that can just change my career plans? I was five, you know, I probably wasn't thinking quite this language. I can change my career plans so abruptly, you know, this is terrible. And I'm like, ooh. I used to want to be a builder, and I think I wanted to be a fireman a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, maybe this this lighting thing won't stick. And I was looking out the window, and someone was building or doing some work on a house opposite, and there was a ladder. And I thought, oh, ladders are good. I think that's why I wanted to be a builder, because I like ladders. And I thought, oh, firemen have ladders as well. Maybe that's it. And I thought, well, I bet in this theatre lighting thing, I bet there are some really big ladders. And that just sealed the deal. And yeah, stuck with it ever since. I don't get ladders anymore, but they're around. Well, my next choice is another blast from the past and it's got some ladders attached to it. So this is really, we've talked about a lot of sort of the more technical, ambitious shows, but we made a show called Wild Bride with Knee High, designed by the amazing Bill Mitchell, which was right back to my folk roots. And you can do all the big pictures, you can do all the um, work with video, all the amazing visuals but you also really get the folk aesthetic which is as much part of me as knee high is um i love this show and i love this song we've chosen um the song from the letter sequence which is when um the devil is intercepting love letters between the prince and his mother and changing it and i remember this because we devised it i think you were there in cornwall in a field and we could not think of a way of doing this and we tried a typewriter hanging from the ceiling um we tried um we tried messengers running across we tried funny walks we tried sort of flying them on strings and in the end we just mimed throwing the letters we, we ended up with such a simple solution <laughs> that really worked. But this is a real lovely memory from our time in Cornish fields making outdoor work and coming up with the simplest ideas, having explored all the silly ones. Oh, one, two, three, two, two, three. Oh, the devil, he'll take your soul. Such style he'll swallow you whole Oh, the devil, he like to dance Boss Nova, give him the chance I'll be taking a gander at that Sickening sentimental claptrap ah. Evil, twisted nastiness Yes! He just won't quit Until he gets you right down in his pit He will charm you with his sweet smile You see him coming, just run a mile yeah. 
eat this, your highness. Your wife was with child. Your child has been born. But born half dog. <laughs> no! Half dog! <laughs> I must love it with all of my heart. Mother, may this message find you well. No, no, no! Ah! Kill the wife. Slaughter the child. Murderous treachery. Poison. Bile. Suck on that, your majesty! Ha! So tell the preacher all of your sins Confess quickly before it begins Hell's eternal as we all know Yes, damnation, it goes a rather slow From royal throne to war zone The messages flew back and forth Their unstinting love and adoration my heinous lies and manipulation. So if you want to take my advice, with such bargains comes a high price. From the devil you cannot hide, for the devil in you resides. Said the king's mother. Kill the child. Slaughter the queen. Keep the eyes and the tongue to prove she is dead. This cannot be. But this is my son's words, and he's king. And the king's words must be obeyed. Such is the binding power of royal duty. The king's mother found a blade in her hand, confusion in her heart, and murder on her mind. Come here, my dear, come here. Come sit beside me. Draw yourself near. Yeah! I've got all day. And I'm taking all my time, yeah. I won't rest until you are mine. Yeah, yes, I will. I won't rest until you are mine. I think I got her. You never get her. You never gonna get her. Yeah, I got her. You never get her. You never gonna get her. You never get her. You never gonna get her. Ridiculous. Stu Goodwin and Stu McLaughlin singing. What a fantastic memory. <laughs> oh, that's, I love that show. And that's one of those ones where it, it did end up being really simple. And that's part of what I'm doing sitting in the room, is, is having a hundred ideas and having really complicated ideas. And then finally, over time, hopefully before we get to the stage, honing them into something really, really simple uh, with all the meaning. But yeah, no faff. It's what I like to call strong but wrong. You have to have a lot of bad ideas before you reveal the good ones. <laughs> yeah, I have so many bad ideas. I, just, I try not to share them. I don't know, always share a bad idea because they they always illuminate something, don't they? Yeah, yeah, true. So tell me about your last choice and why you've chosen it. Well, there's a, there's, there are two reasons. Um, one is, this is the one song I think I actually know all the lyrics and the tune to without having to have the prompt of it being played. So I think there are probably thousands of songs if you played them. I'd be able to sing along with. That's probably the same for all of us. You know, the lyrics are embedded in there somewhere as part of that. 
This is the one that actually, if I'm on my own in a forest or walking along a, a quiet city street and there's no one around, I can just sing the whole thing to myself very happily. And it, it's a song that just makes me really happy. And I remember once, this was back in the Cornish days, you set a task for everyone before rehearsal started to bring something along, like a song or a skill. And and I think really you were aiming this at the performers and the musicians, the people we were actually going to be looking at. But I thought, I'm going to bring something just in case I get called upon. And um, I thought I'd sing this song. And thank God you didn't call upon me to do this because I really can't hold the tune at all. But, you know, you would have heard me sing this had you had I been called upon. Oh, I love you for that. I feel I, now I feel sad. I feel that was a missed moment in our relationship. <laughs> when we meet after lockdown, Malcolm Ripith, I'm going to make you sing this for me over a large gin and tonic. It's just it wouldn't be the same without the guitar and the recorders. It's also my favourite song that features a recorder. And, they're, you know, they're in short supply in popular music. But, you know, <laughs> I do love a recorder. <laughs> Well, listen, before we play out, can I thank you for being by my side throughout the whole of my directing career? You're the greatest storyteller. You're a painter with light. You have the rigour and calm of a true colleague. And I thank you for your loyalty, your integrity, your hours of watching rehearsals, your artistry, your patience, your great dancing and your top friendship. Thank you for having tea and biscuits with me, Malcolm Ripith. Judy wrote the saddest song Showed it to a boy in school today Judy, where did you go wrong? You used to make me smile when I was down Judy was a teenage rebel She did it with the boy when she was young She gave herself to books and learning She gave herself to being number one Judy, I don't know you if you're gonna show me everything Judy, I don't know you if you're gonna show me everything Judy got a book at school She went under the covers with a torch Fell asleep till the first morning She dreamt about the girl who stole a horse Judy never felt so good except when she was sleeping Judy never felt so good except when she was sleeping
connection you'd like to share on tea and biscuits leave us a message on our phone line 0117 318 3846 that's 0117 318 3846 keep checking our social media for details of our next show tea and biscuits is part of wise children's lockdown thanks for hanging out with us bye